small little group tonight. Uh, hopefully more will join us as we progress. Um, just got a couple of things. Uh, to be honest, uh, I think we're kind of volcanoed out, but the most of the news cycle was about uh, another drone going over the volcano and ending up inside of it. Um, I didn't even click on the links. I don't know if it was an old video or a newer video, but uh, I think we've shown uh, plenty of those at this point. Um, let me, oh, let me share my screen. Oh, and uh, let me do the formalities. Um, for those of you joining us for the first time or haven't joined us in a while, I'm Josh, also known as Cujo. We got Dan over there. We've got uh, Dave and we've got Alex. Um, so, uh, Welcome, everybody. We appreciate you coming this evening. Um, so this uh, comes out of um, Chile. So it's in the country Chile. Um, so a drone skirmish happens as the Chile football team your spy. So apparently football, a.k.a. soccer for us North Americans here, um, is uh, having issues with people from other teams spying on their practices and their training utilizing drone. So uh, it says, as football rivalries go, the one between Chile and Argentina is up there among the fiercest. So it should come as no surprise that when Chile's national team saw a drone hovering above a training session, it suspected its rivals of spying ahead of Thursday's World Cup qualifier. The team sent up its own drone, which swiftly brought down the spy camp. But rather than being a devious Argentine device, the drone turned out to be from a Chilean energy company. Uh, <laughs> if it was just the teams going back and forth, it sounds like they're inventing a whole new sport there. Right? With you the know, drone who can back take down the drone the fastest? <laughs> drone wars. World Cup drone wars, right? So the incident oh. happened just days before the two sides are due to meet in a World Cup qualifier on Thursday. Uh, the Chilean team was training at Juan Pinto uh, Duran Stadium in the capital of uh, Santiago when players spotted the drone. Uh, I'm not going to go into a whole lot more of this. I just thought it was pretty funny that we had a little bit of a drone war going on over uh, some soccer practice. So uh, pretty unique. Um, oh, let me share my screen. I am sorry, Dan. Okay. this um so this comes from the hill uh a pentagon report clears the use of drones made by top chinese manufacturer um so we've talked about this a lot lately um where there was a ban on dji drones being able to be utilized for government or government funded purposes um so this report coming from the hill uh, states that two drone models made by Chinese uh, or China's largest manufacturer have been cleared for use by a Pentagon audit, according to a report summary. An, uh, an analysis of the two Dajiang da Innovations, aka DJI, drones built for the government found no malicious code or intent and are recommended for use by government entities and forces working with U.S. services. The remainder of the report, dated May 6, remains classified. The report's author, the second chief warrant officer within the United States Army Special Operations Command, Adam Prater, declined to public com publicly comment on the summary. Um, 
The report appears to analyzes, analyze changes made by two drones uh, used by the Interior Department. The agency temporarily grounded its fleet of more than 500 DJI drones in January 2020 over cyber security concerns, with some exceptions for emergency use. The Interior Department in March made it easier for a drone mission to qualify as an emergency. Um, the Pentagon's findings allow allegations of data sharing with the Chinese government lobbed against uh, DJI by lawmakers such as Dan Crenshaw and uh, Marco Rubio, Marsha Blackburn, Tom Cotton, Rick Scott, and John Korn. Uh, the company has maintained that no data is transferred from its products to either the Chinese Communist Party or the company itself. So um, this goes back to, um, obviously, to January last year, uh, where uh Basically, the Department of the Interior, who does a lot of uh, surveying, utilizing the drones, managing BLM lands, uh, as well as utilizing them for controlled burns, were unable to do so. Um, and uh, the way they uh, utilize them for controlled burns, they have uh, basically they drop these little almost like paintball things with, uh, I think, like a phosphorus type uh, material in them. They'll drop them from the drones via a remote controlled uh you know dropper mechanism and ignite small fires that they can utilize to do controlled burns to keep um the vegetation under control and prevent uh wildfires from happening um and uh, i think maybe about two months ago we talked about this where those controlled burns haven't been happening at all uh so the department of the interior now that they can utilize those drones and they don't have 500 paperweights sitting uh in their offices uh hopefully they can get caught up on that and this is a big win for dji as well um because they've been under some serious scrutiny from the u.s government um so pretty interesting that this kind of flushes it out so um we'll keep a eye on this and kind of see where it goes um so, but, this, uh, so this is an an, an audit and I understand that their the Commerce Department uh, may still have to, as the article characterizes, uh, declare uh, emergency use. So it doesn't uh, alter the uh, some of the restrictions. But uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, it's good news for DJI. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the Department of the Interior, they worked with DJI, or more so DJI worked with them, to create a custom software set for these drones that was free of any kind of you know data transmission uh to outside sources and and whatnot and and met the very stringent uh, uh requests of the department of the interior for exactly those purposes um i don't think the department of the interior uh was foolish in in having that done um, but at the same time, you know, DJI's stance has always been that they don't offer up any data to the CCP or, or anybody. So that they're an independent company, um, not government backed or anything like that. So, uh, it'll be pretty interesting. Um, I think this still does not flush out the ability to purchase new DJI drones, uh, from a financial perspective, because we've, we've had legislation that prohibits, uh, uh, purchasing drones from certain uh, companies and it, more so countries of origin, um, and so well, I don't think that's been relaxed. Yeah, that has to. What you have to do is you have to get a license from the Commerce Department to purchase components. 
So, for example, if you're Skydio and you're building one of your own drones and you're picking up motors from China, uh, you have to uh, sign uh, agreements that uh, with the people who are supplying those. And so um, it, it does make uh, supply chain a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's uh, pretty interesting. Good stuff there. All right. So this one's fun. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate this and at the same time may not care. Um, so uh, GoPro uh, is has filed for a patent to squelch drone noise as it's made, um, utilizing internal filters. Um, so originally, I guess, uh, Sony applied for a patent uh, for noise-canceling drones to create havens of quiet and otherwise loud areas. GoPro um, has obtained a patent for its own uh, for its own for racket suppression tech. So uh, the GoPro pat patent focuses on methods of squelching rotor, mo motor, and other sounds made by drones themselves. Uh, the evident objective of the GoPro system is to rid audio tracks accompanying videos of the winding din that often, often renders them useless. Imagine shooting footage of gathering sports competitions or cultural events and being able to hear the soundtracks rather than the giant mosquito buzzing. Would so, this actually work like if the GoPro's on your drone? Or is this well, only like if a GoPro is like on a bike 30, 40 feet away from the drone? So this is supposed to work if the GoPro is on the drone. So a lot of people will utilize uh, you know, GoPros and stuff on uh, like phantoms and whatnot. Now, my question then becomes FPV drones are a whole other beast, as we all know. Um, instead of a lot of like for anybody who's flown or seen a, a DJI drone in flight, uh, the motors make a pretty consistent sound uh, unless you're accelerating or, or doing a quick maneuver. Whereas FPV drones, it's a really high pitch. It's variable from second to second. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that tech works with high performance drones. Yeah, I think and, and I'm sure a lot of people part. wouldn't want to use it on their FPV drone anyway. Absolutely, they like to hear the sound of the motors. But I'd be I'd be mm -hmm. curious to see how it works for sure. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people who don't want the sound, they just nullify the audio track, right? And they just yep. put music or something over it. So. You know, I'd be it's shocked not... if it could, the microphone could pick up anything else. If yeah, uh... so I think uh, some of the stuff that uh, uh, so it, let's see, added up, it means the user will have a baseline operational noise noise profile of the drone composed during his or her first flight with the system. That default will be automatically updated or modified during future missions. The tech also allows pilots themselves to intervene and tweak parameters so that any additional, perhaps unexpected sound can be suppressed or permitted through if automatically canceled according to their preferences. So, and it says, of course, there are those clever flyers who have already devised workaround techniques for removing rotor wine from their video, um, using post-production, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the other fun part is, is at the bottom, it says, for some pilots, it will now be possible to fly above concert crowds and hear how astonishingly bad that warm-up band really was. Let's not be doing that. <laughs> but uh, so at any rate, uh, pretty interesting tech coming out in uh, noise cancellation. So, all right. This is pretty unique. Um, and 
this is a, a pretty cool program that's going on. So Embry-Riddle, um, who has campuses all over the country and I think maybe a couple uh, across the world, but um, recently received, received a first-of-its-kind waiver from the FAA that will allow students to remotely pilot unmanned aerial systems or drones through online video platforms like Zoom. Um, uh, Dr. David 30acre, that's an interesting last name. Uh, we've worked closely with the FAA on this project for two years and now have the ability to let students fly complex drones that are not at their location from anywhere in the United States. This opens up all sorts of training and opportunities for our students. Um, allowing what is known as remote split operations, uh, the waiver gives Embry-Riddle students a jump on a valuable technology and is the first of its type to be granted to a civilian organization. Um, RSO introduces complex operational environments for our students to experience the importance of crew resource management, effective communication, aeronautical decision-making, and airmanship principles. These are all fundal, fundamental components of knowledge, skills, and abilities for an unmanned system operator, which sets Embry-Riddle students apart. So this is to go along with their UAS uh, program, obviously, uh, but pretty unique that distance learning has evolved into something like this. Now, curious what the, uh, the lag time is going to be. And I don't, yeah, are the, <laughs> yeah, BVLOS in a big way, absolutely. So uh, pretty interesting. Uh, being able to conduct these missions with experienced pilots will allow student pilots like me to become more industry leaders. So I'm wondering if there's almost like a, a piggyback system or a, a trainer uh, system yeah, like, set up. Yeah, two radios set up in a trainer where there's the both of you have control sort of where you can flip control back and forth. Yeah, so the instructor would actually be the one on site basically being the remote you know, pilot in command and... Uh, and then handing over control to the uh, remote remote pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The super duper yeah, remote so pilot. Remote the, fact that they, the fact that they got a waiver says that they must be flying outside, but this is beyond visual line of sight, and it's mm -hmm. all because it's an educational institution. Mm -hmm. There you go. Okay, this is this is really worth following. Not only very, that, but it's I'm sure expensive. they're feeding back research information as well that falls within the remote uh, identification. I think they might be using a system similar to that one that uh, that one company that Red Cat recently brought up, wrote a ride, did that video where they're controlling it. Yeah, Skypersonic. I think they might be using something similar. Could be. Uh, it doesn't really cover like what kind of system they're utilizing, but I mean even just on this video itself. So I'm sure there's a, a, a little bit of lag here, and this is just within Discord. It's a closed ecosystem, but something like Zoom, definitely a longer delay. So it'll be interesting to see what types of drones they're flying, what types of missions they're flying, and, and how they deal with that kind of latency. So, um, but uh, yeah, definitely pretty interesting. All right. Um... What else do I have here? Let's see. So this comes out of, sorry, let me get to the top, out of my home state down in Tucson. 
And I saw this originally on Facebook in one of the groups, and I didn't dig really deep into it, and I didn't hear about it, even it being uh, down here. So apparently last month, uh, uh, I'm sorry, back in, let's see, back in February, uh, a helicopter belonging to U.S. Customs and Border Protection encountered what has been described by Cold's Dan Marys who interviewed an FBI agent assigned to the case as a highly modified drone in controlled airspace. Another helicopter operated by the Tucson Police Department's air support unit was called in to help track and potentially identify the drone alongside one from Customs uh, and Border Patrol, but the drone was able to evade them both and remain unidentified. Shortly after the incident was disclosed, the FBI released a statement asking for help from the public regarding any information related to the encounter. Um, in the days since we first reported on the Tucson drone encounter, individuals have reached out with new information that adds further context to this still developing story. A source with direct knowledge of the incident's details told the war zone that they believe the drone was highly unlikely to be battery powered based on the altitude, distance, and speed at which it flew. The source also stated it seems as though the drone was equipped with an infrared camera based on how it was able to dynamically maneuver, including in relation to the helicopters chasing it, despite the low level of ambient light at the time of the incident. People haven't heard of Starlight cameras, have they? <laughs> um, sorry, throwing that out there. All right, so um, the other interesting parts, and I'm not going to go through every bit of this, is a pretty interesting read. Um, but... Uh, Apparently, it was uh, flying in areas over and around uh, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base, which we mentioned earlier before we started, um, as well as the Tucson International Airport uh, and very close to the fence line surrounding the base. Um, apparently, they were in areas of like critical infrastructure, including gas storage, gas pipelines um and uh you know interesting kind of surveilling of potential targets or i don't know who knows i i you know i'm not a conspiracy theorist so but at the same time a little sketchy at the same you know a little sketchy so um but uh, yeah, we'll see kind of where this goes. Um, this this is a pretty long article. Uh, I'm not gonna dig super deep into it, but uh, definitely worth a read um, on you know some of this stuff. Now, a couple years ago, this same type of thing actually happened here in Phoenix, maybe about 20 miles from me out at Palo Verde Power Plant. There were like a couple of drones spotted around there. So really weird. And uh, I don't think they've ever really disclosed what happened of uh, what happened out at Palo Verde, you know, fully. But um, another example of our government agencies not having enough to do, well, you know. Um, but uh, who knows what's going on? Uh, I don't know what they mean by a highly modified aircraft, but um, and it doesn't. I don't know that it states how long the chase was. Uh, in another story I saw, it said it went on for about an hour, and it was also able to reach speeds of over 100 miles per hour. So it's definitely, so definitely yeah. fixable, right? Well, it if it was say... an actual thing at all. 
Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, I mean, according, I mean, now there's, I mean, UFOs are real. So, I mean, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, even still, like, I mean, there are some like long-term fixed-wing aircraft, but most of them are not going to have the power capable of reaching 100 miles an hour and still flying for an hour. I mean, Dave, I mean, you're, you're more savvy on the fixed wing. I mean, I, like, I know the Kaiparana too, um, can fly for a long time, but it's a highly efficient motor and it's not the fastest thing in the sky either. Um, so, I mean, what kind of, I mean, size and power, I mean, anything can fly for a long power, long time, as long as it's big enough to carry the batteries. I mean, but a hundred miles an hour, that would for an hour, it's a little odd. They never said help. <laughs> They never give a size on that, did they, Gojo? Uh, yeah. I don't think so. Let's see. Oh, here, yeah, the quad. Oh, they say it's a quadcopter. Yeah. Quadcopter is, was described approximately five feet long by three feet wide, with a single green flashing LED light. Sounds custom yeah. built. <laughs> if it was an actual thing at all, like are we like because hundred yeah. miles per hour and hour long flight time. Was it cold fusion powered too? I mean, it sounds like Amazon. Why would it be wider than it is long, or longer than it is wide? It it sounds like Amazon showing off to Google, like, "Hey, look what we can do." (laughs) (laughs) Wow, it was a green light legal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. So, it was last seen climbing through. Okay, hold on. Let me let me let me dig in a little deeper. Altitude. I think you got fourteen thousand. Fourteen thousand. Yeah. Yep. So it says uh, um, the operator apparently realized by this time that the drone was being followed because it then proceeded northwest at high speed and climbing with the helo and another law enforcement helo and trail. The copter began to climb and flew out of the uh, TUS area at a, uh, about 50 miles to the northwest of town into the middle of nowhere desert out by the mine west of CAVQ. It was last seen climbing through 14,000 feet and into the undercast where it disappeared. The helos remained in visual meteorological conditions, obviously, and one hung, hung around for about an hour to see if it would reappear descending or if there was any vehicles driving through the middle of nowhere as either the operator or someone to potentially recover it. Neither appeared. Is this near the border? How close is this to the border? Or are we not? Tucson's probably still another 80 miles. Hundred miles north of uh, north of the Mexico border. Um, you think you can make a long flight if it was an hour long flight? They can make it from the Mexico border. Mm, no. Yeah. At a hundred miles a an hour. <laughs> well, I mean, you could, but there'd be no battery left. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I, it, no, just no. Well, whatever technology I mean, they have. They need to share it with us so we can build some better FPV drones. <laughs> yeah. I need that for racing. I'm thinking, that, no I'm thinking that, that mine is probably the bat cave where they landed and changed batteries, right? <laughs> you guys have all watched Airwolf, right? <laughs> where they, I know. They've got the yeah, helicopter yeah, yeah. that comes out of the mountain. They come out of the mesa, yeah. Right. <laughs> that used to be one of my favorite shows growing up. I think XJet did a video on this incident as well. Oh, one. did they? Yeah, X-Jet. Bruce. Cool, cool. Oh, X-Jet. I thought you said Extra, and I was like... Oh. No, X-Jet. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. You did a video on it, I'm pretty sure. All right. Um...
Um, let me grab this one. So um, either drones or UFOs or, you know, somebody uh, didn't get enough sleep that night. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, uh, state engineering boards target drone photographers for unlicensed survey works. This comes out of North Carolina and the North Carolina Board of Examiners for Engineers and Surveyors in a federal court document acknowledges taking action against drone operators it believes crossed the line into surveying work. Um, the board now faces a federal lawsuit from one, one drone operator, Michael Jones, who says he was forced to stop doing aerial photography work for clients after being hit with the board's cease and desist order. The North Carolina dispute is shaping up to be a pivotal one, having made the leap from sleepy licensing board proceedings to a federal court battle that has generated headlines, including coverage by the Associated Press, which first reported the issue. In question is where the line will be drawn between aerial photography and related services and licensed land surveying work. A little survey survey pun there. Where are they going to draw the line? (laughs) Right. (laughs) More broadly, the case exposes the uneasy relationship between established state professional boards whose codes of conduct and standards of professionalism are written to protect the public and upstart technologies with proven benefits such as drones that disrupt and potentially drain resources from established professionals and individually licensed engineers. So this Um, is drone operators are disrupting. Apparently. Well, what's, you know, what you think about, you'd, you'd need something on the ground. You'd need to be cooperating with a surveyor in order to get anything that's of any value to a survey company from the drone because the GPS coordinates that the drone gets are nowhere near. In fact, they're two orders of magnitude off in terms of accuracy of the, the requirement uh, down the, on the ground for surveying. So it's like, this, this could be interesting from a technology argument where they like, you know, why, you know, they can go up there and photograph and create 3D maps, and unless they're working with us, it's useless work. If this is right. the same and, one that I, mean, I read about a long time ago, it didn't make any sense to me. It's like a company hires someone just for some, some, um, some relatively simple photos. They don't need like actual surveying. They don't need them to be accurate. They just want to see, like, say a farmer just wants to see, oh, there's a wet spot in the middle of my field in this particular area. But it, traditionally, you'd have to hire some surveyor to accurately map this stuff out in the past. Well, now you can just have your friend with a drone do it, and now they're all upset about that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the thing is, is you can use, like, you know, even more so than GPS. I know a lot of people use, um, like, uh, little, uh, basically, square... Um, uh, placards that they drop that will give you an accurate measurement of of what you're looking at from up above yeah and, I, I agree uh, with tech there i think this is really a group of people who are somewhat becoming obsolete looking to use regulations to kill competition mm-hmm, absolutely and i mean we see this a lot every time new technology comes out right so in automation at uh you know factories and, and stuff like that you'll see a lot of this kind of stuff where you know even unions themselves will will fight back against that kind of stuff so um it's pretty interesting to see this and it'll be interesting to see where it comes but uh it says 2018 jones was hit with a surprise when the north carolina board sent him a letter arguing that much of his works amounted to surveying without a proper license the board launched an investigation 
and sent Jones a final notice in 2019. Fearful he could face criminal charges and was unable to pay for a lawyer, Jones grounded his budding aerial mapping business, a move he contends cost him over $10,000. Still frustrated over the situation, Jones decided to take his course case to federal court in January after the Institute for Justice, a free market advocacy organization, agreed to represent him. He filed a complaint late March in the U.S. District Court in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it'll be interesting to see how this flushes out because it could change the way that drones are utilized, um, especially since this is now a federal case um, on on what what's permitted and what's not permitted. And, you know, are, are we going to be, you know, restricted to, you know, real estate photos or are we going to be able to continue doing the kind of ground mapping and stuff like that? Just don't um, uh, draw property air, lines man. on that real estate photo. Right. <laughs> I, I heard I heard about a uh, another a use for a commercial use for small small and moderate sized drones in uh, Dan's good state of uh, Minnesota, which is the uh, Minnesota Department of Transportation is using drones for construction, and mm-hmm. not not building. But uh, doing documentation and as belts and uh, mm-hmm. and augmenting uh, prints, so like, oh, that's great. That makes a ton of sense. We've definitely yeah, talked the, about doing that the at fact, the college I work for too, just on small projects, taking pictures every day as things are built and changed. Absolutely, yeah. and um, I I see it. Uh, you know, when even when I'm just driving to work um, on the side of the freeway, they were building the uh, noise suppression walls on the side. And um, they had a drone up in the air, you know, taking pictures of what they were doing, you know, literally feet off the freeway. Um, so pretty interesting stuff. I hope they were using that uh, GoPro squelch sound <laughs> stuff. Cause... <laughs> All right. So um, this is from our friend XJet. Um, and this uh, came as a recommendation from Dave. Um, he... Uh, I'm going to skip the majority of the video and we're going to start from where I have it kind of keyed right here. But um, uh, the basically the um, counterpart to the FAA over in New Zealand, the I th- is it CASA over there? Um, yeah. Department of Transportation for uh, New Zealand has instituted some uh, or is attempting to institute some regulations that we are all too familiar with in which all drone operators, whether commercial or recreational, would have to pay to register their um, individual drones. So instead of registering as a pilot, as we do in the United States, um, they would have to register each and every one of their drones. And he goes into a little bit of detail on that. So I'm going to play that real quick. Um let me know if the sound comes through. Yep, it does. You might want to turn it up a little bit, though, if you can. If you're anywhere in the world, you need to go to the description of this video. There's a link to a survey, a, a feedback form, because, as I mentioned in a previous video, the New Zealand regulator is proposing some new regulations about drones and model aircraft, and they're totally, totally unacceptable. Some of them are anyway. So you need to go and read the discussion paper, which I'll link to, and then have your say. You've got to have your say. Now, these people are requesting feedback 
we know they're not going to listen to the bits they don't agree with. A little bit of an echo through your mic, but not too bad. I just steamroll ahead and throw these ridiculous laws. For example, like having to register every single drone or model aircraft you have individually with pictures if necessary, and then maintain this, the, you know, update that information if you crash it or if you modify it in any way. In New Zealand at the moment, as I make this video, we don't have to register individually firearms. As a firearms only, you register yourself, but your guns are not individually registered. The new drone rules, as proposed, would require every single drone to be individually registered with the government. Why? Aren't guns more dangerous than drones? I don't know. Um, you tell me. Anyway, so this is the sort of thing we've really got to stop. It's not acceptable. It's not practical. It is just lunacy. It's going to cost um, a fortune for people to register all their craft and, of course, the, the restrictions, the unnecessary restrictions. Remember, the death toll associated with the recreational use of multi-rotor drones has always been and remains a big fat zero. And that's a good indicator as to the risks we're looking at here. Anyway, that's it. Got to go. Too much to do. Bye for now. All right. So um, obviously, so I, so I think some of the folks uh, had trouble hearing that. Uh, but uh, Bruce has helped us uh, through the N NPRM and uh, throughout uh, our existence. So uh, take a look at the CAA website if you can, and uh, uh, respond if you uh, uh, if it looks like uh, responses from outside of New Zealand are accepted. Certainly, with the FAA uh, comments uh, are accepted from citizens outside of the United States. So. Let's help Bruce out if we can. Absolutely. So, um, you know, they are uh, taking, uh, basically providing feedback via survey. So um, whether they accept our recommendations or not, uh, even being a, a U.S. pilot, um, I'm going to throw in my two cents um, because we just went through this with uh, within the remote ID documentation. So the remote ID uh, NPRM, actually wanted to do this exact same thing. And so it doesn't make sense and it's absolutely ridiculous um, that recreational would need to do this. I, I, I really don't think that commercial really needs to do it either, but you know, that is, you know, a whole different uh, ball of wax. But um, in reality, um, registering as the pilot on a recreational aircraft that, you know, by their standards and ours doesn't fly out of line of sight um, is absurd and it's just a, a money-making venture and absolutely makes no sense. So I'm going to throw in my two cents. Um, the link, um, just below the video takes you to the transport, uh, New Zealand site and the drone integration down at the bottom. Um, it says making a submission and it says you can provide, provide feedback by completing the online survey or sending an email or written submission. Um, you don't have to tell them where you're from, um, but uh, it, it's worth uh, throwing in some comments there, just letting them you know know your thoughts on it, and uh, help uh, Bruce and and all our fellow pilots who live in New Zealand. So, um, at any rate, uh, I think that's about all I have. I, I don't have any more news articles, so I'm going to hand it over to Alex. I have uh, some interesting stuff for drone racing. Um, so we have this article from uh, the school. 
uh, with uh, school in Europe, I believe. Um, or yeah, from the University of Zurich um, by uh, Christian. I don't know how to pronounce his name, his last name, and then De David, I guess. And this talks about latency between human pilot uh, for drone racing. And uh, there's about a 220 millisecond uh, latency from when, from where pilot's eyes are looking to where the drone or to the command input. So you're looking several gates ahead and that's what it found. It seemed to be very consistent. There's a video to both of those. I uh, linked those in the general chat. And so, so do I understand this correctly, Alex? That this this is saying that there's a two twenty millisecond lag. I'm seeing versus the time I can respond, or what is the the lag that uh, that they're talking about, or the latency? So that's from uh, where where the eye looks to when the drone to input command to do that movement. Uh, the video is only about eight minutes long, so I'll share my screen and then uh, we can watch it all together of uh, the video summary. And then there's the article summary again. Uh, so let's see. the screen there I got it and everybody my name is Christian. do you have any audio I'm a postdoctoral yes. researcher at the robotics and perception group at the University of Zurich in this video you can see human pilots in a drone race humans are able to fly very fast and agile in highly cluttered environments under difficult visual conditions the main research question, therefore, in our lab is, can we build autonomous systems that fly as good or even better than the best human pilots? But why is agile flight important? If we were able to fly fast and agile autonomously, we would also have a solution to the limited battery life of a drone. This would help make autonomous systems more efficient, reliable, and safe. And it can be very important to transfer this knowledge into real-world applications, such as industrial inspection, surveillance, and delivery. In our lab, we particularly focus on capabilities that are relevant to search and rescue operations. Flying a DJI as you can see in this image, our vision is to build drones <laughs> that can navigate all by themselves, enter collapsed buildings, and find survivors quickly. This is a very challenging task when performed based on vision only. A task which human pilots are actually able of doing. So there is a gap between the performance of human pilot and autonomous systems. In order to close this gap, we ask how do human pilots fly quadrotor drones? As you can see in this illustration, a human pilot uses three pieces of equipment. A drone, a video goggle and a remote controller. A camera attached to the drone records video immediately in front of the drone. 
This video is sent to the video goggles so that the human pilot sees a first-person view image of uh, the camera recording. The pilot uses eye movements to select the most relevant visual information, uses the visual information to derive a plan about the future control actions, and then sends a control command via finger movements to the remote controller. These control commands are then sent to the drone as changes of the motor rotation speeds that change the trajectory of the drone. Based on previous work in car drivers that showed that uh, eye movements and control commands are highly correlated, we ask how are eye movements and hand movements in drone pilots related? To address this question, we invited experienced drone pilots to the laboratory to use a highly realistic drone racing simulator. Participants were then equipped with a first-person view display that showed the video recording from the drone, an eye tracker to record their eye movements, and a remote controller to record their control commands. This video illustrates the eye and hand movements during a single lap of the, on the racing track. The task for human pilots was complete as many laps as possible. On the right side, you can see that a lap consisted of 10 gates, here shown as black rectangles, that had to be passed in a specific order. The racetrack used in this experiment was a figure of eight racetrack consisting of a left turn and a right turn. We also used a more challenging track where every second gate was elevated by three meters, where pilots, in addition to performing a left and right turn, also had to perform an up and downward flying maneuver. It's a pretty boring track. On the bottom you can see the procedure of the experiment. <laughs> After an initial training, participants were asked to repeatedly fly the two racetracks for two minutes after which they received feedback about their performance and answered a couple of questions. Let's have a look at how participants moved their eyes. We used a region of interest analysis. That means we defined several regions of interest, the outlines of the racing gates, and asked when, for how long, and where exactly did participants focus their eye gaze. On the right side, you can see Participants were on average 16 meters away from the upcoming gate when they first looked at this gate. Participants were on average 1.5 seconds away from the gate when they first looked at the gate. And this was highly consistent across the left turn, the right turn and across different gates, indicating that participants use a long planning horizon. Now we asked where exactly did pilots focus their attention on? On the bottom, you can see a distribution of the eye gaze fixations onto the regions of interest. Lighter colors indicate higher probability of fixation than darker colors. And as you can clearly see, for a left turn maneuver, participants mostly focus on the left part of the gate, whereas for a right turn maneuver on the right part of the gate. When performing elevations and descending maneuvers, the eye gaze fixation shifted to the lower and the higher parts of the gate, indicating that participants' eye gaze fixations anticipated the future flight path. But how about the relationship between eye movements and control commands? We then compute the horizontal projection and angle between the velocity vector, the direction in which the camera is pointing, a gaze where participants are looking, and the direction of commanded thrusts. This gives rise to three angles uh, that can be computed across time. We ask how do these quantities 
change across time and how are they related? To answer this question, we perform cross-correlation analysis and compute repeatedly correlations by time shifting by small steps. This gives rise to a distribution of correlations as shown here in red and blue for different sequences and racetracks. What we can extract from these cross-correlograms are the peak amplitude, how strong was the correlation between two signals of interest, and the peak latency, by how much are these latencies shifted. Performing this analysis, we found the highest correlations between the three quantities just mentioned, thrust, gaze, and camera vectors with respect to the forward velocity. Correlations ranked in the order of uh, 0.8 and 0.9 and had a specific sequence where eye gaze was followed by camera, which was then followed by changes of the thrust vector in the same direction. The whole sequence of events, eye, camera, and thrust vector changes, took on average 220 milliseconds, which indicate the perception and control latency of human pilots in a drone racing task. In summary, this work investigated the hand-eye coordination in human drone racing pilots. We found that humans focus their attention on the future flight trajectory several seconds and meters ahead of the drone with a long planning horizon. We found that the eye fixations were congruent with the planned flight trajectory, indicating perception-aware flight, and that perception and control latency was about 220 milliseconds suggesting a possible reason for why human pilots use a long planning horizon. We believe this work is important in several respects. First, it provides insights into human-robot interaction in highly dynamic environments. And second, it might provide first step towards finding solutions to solve challenges in fast and autonomous flight. Please note that this dataset is openly available and I would like to encourage you to make use of the dataset Thank you very much for your attention. All right. So that was that uh, summary of that study. Interesting. Yeah. So I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting that, you know, there, I mean, I was watching, I wish there was more of the eye tracking video in there. Mm -hmm. Watch. Uh, there was, an, I think there was a clip uh, somewhere else that might. No, it's just that same clip. Okay, so it seemed like the short little bit that I saw, as soon as they basically set up the trajectory for the gate, they were already looking at the next gate before they mm -hmm. even passed through the first one. And I'd like yeah. to see something like that on a more complex course. Yeah. Uh, I know, like, I know when I, like, fly through sometimes a gap doing... or... Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, because sometimes on those more complex courses, you're doing blind turns. Yeah, and that's what I would like to see, is like, yeah. what's happening with the eye movement in order to set that kind of stuff up? And I think a lot of that comes down to potentially muscle memory of just flying mm -hmm. that course, right? Um, from and practice and how simulators. How much your eyes move depend completely on the goggles you're wearing, mm -hmm. your camera setup, how mm -hmm. your camera, if it's a wide angle or mm -hmm. narrow camera. and, and when some of the first goggles came out with bigger screens in them, people would complain, oh, I have to move my eyes around to see everything. They would like the small screen mm -hmm. far away, so when they were racing, they didn't have to look at it. They could actually see the whole screen without moving your eyes. Right. 
Now, if you've got a DJI mm -hmm. set up with the, like, you know, you're in an IMAX theater, that's a whole different story. You actually have to, like, look around. <laughs> Absolutely. And I fly with HD2s. So I've got the, the biggest screen Fat Sharks ever put on anything. And um, I don't, I don't feel, I don't know. I don't feel like I move my eyes around a whole lot. But at the same time, I know when I'm setting up for a gap or a gate or something like that, I'm usually like looking dead center. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the goobers that still keeps the crosshair on so I can line things up <laughs> properly. <laughs> so... I, I think to me, it really just showed that so, Alex, drone pilots I'm... plan ahead for where they're going. Like, well, of course they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think velocity dictates that, right? And I just thought it was interesting the pre-setup that they're setting up a trajectory for one gate and then going ahead and, you know, setting up the mindset and, and next movement for the next. Yeah, and gate. that's so, totally normal in any kind of track racing or skiing. You you don't plan anything for the gate you're about mm -hmm. to hit. You're thinking about a gate or two down from where you are. Mm -hmm. So sad turtle soup says, and most pilots will plan the course before even taking off or putting the goggles on. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, you visualize and I think a lot it. of that comes from, mm -hmm, comes from pre-visual visualization and, and you'll see Watching a lot other of, pilots fly. Absolutely. No, even flying Bando, I will walk around before mm. I even take off. Oh yeah. So you know what your hazards are, right? So, uh, it absolutely makes sense. Um, but yeah, motor, you, motorcycle racers walk the entire track for the mm -hmm. same reason. So, yeah, they have the a plan. E racing inspection. Yep. So, yeah. Alex, what's your takeaway? So, uh, am I getting it that 220 milliseconds? That's the the full closed loop feedback that they're talking about from gaze to mm -hmm. um, uh, you get the uh, the data in, and then there's uh, then you put uh, uh, control yeah. feedback back to the uh, you you input on the controller yeah. or transmitter back to the uh, to the drone and the when we talk about uh racing drone latency we're talking mm -hmm. about the the measured latency of the device and that's usually in the 3 to 10 11 mm -hmm. 12 millisecond range right yeah so so what what's your uh, takeaway from this and like okay i can use this to help myself as a racer the at my level i don't think i can use it to help myself as a racer um uh, maybe some of the top pilots but uh being in like the middle area doesn't really affect me too much so well, i think i thought, I, I thought you were gonna say well you know i i worry that I, i'm looking too far ahead and now mm -hmm. i know that i'm maybe not looking far enough ahead that that's what i thought you were gonna say <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I mean, think if you, the... if you if you think about it, right? I mean, that's that's what the data would imply that you you know, given yeah. the velocity that in the, the the distance that you're going to travel in 220 milliseconds, you need to be way ahead of that. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, is I'd like to see not only where the gaze is going towards the gate, and and I think that was the other interesting part, but where the drone actually went through the gate at, in terms mm. of what part of the gate, because. You know, me as somebody who flies freestyle doesn't race, but I can fly through gates. I mean, that's not difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, can I do it in quick succession without dying? You know, I mean, that's another thing. But um, I, I tend to aim for the middle because that's the easiest place for me to understand it's the safest that place. where the drone is 
Exactly, right? Well, but well, if their if their gaze is shifting to the left on a left That all turn, depends on the track. Are they what's coming up next? Uh, right. Well, so I know are they the... getting the gate at that corner as to clean like basically have the cleanest race line and this, you know, mm -hmm. basically shorten their their milliseconds through the gates? Or yeah, so that brings up like pre turning and stuff like that where you're turning before you even get to the gate. So when you finish your turn, you're already outside of the gate. And we think of double gates where you have to go bottom Corks up or yeah. top down. You're just trying to keep that as tight as you can. So you're not going to the center. That's too much space. You're Absolutely. taking a longer track. So you're. But I'd like to see that tight around data. that. You know, so, yeah. that, that's what I'd like to see. But I'm sure they're asking for, too, that for more money like... to do more research on that. <laughs> and, what was interesting is in the video that in the clip that they did show of that one pilot going through that course, that was kind of slow flying, like for right. racing, I'd say it was so on the slower side. Something on, you know, like Minchan or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, any of the pilots that went to or, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, or any of these guys that are at the top of their game mm -hmm. and flying, you know, like a multi GP course as opposed to a figure eight. Right. Yeah. Um, so, like even the GQ track, right? And where you have I mean, thousands of pilots do it. I mean, what did you say the uh, av like the the fastest time on the GQ track was? Uh, currently, I think it's around ten to eleven seconds, Absolutely and there's insane. sixteen gates, so that's so, less than a second a gate. Wow! Well, absolutely. I mean, that's almost like a gate and a half, two gates. Mm -hmm. I could barely uh, do that second. in a straight so, line. <laughs> right <laughs> so like let's have some some more uh like high key data like that so but i think yeah, the other interesting yeah, takeaway has a good comment he says but he's uh, suggesting that it depends on knowing the craft uh, and he comments about when he's flying uh, a flying wing or a, fi a fixed wing that um that has a different characteristic as well and i think that's fair. You have to yeah. you know, really understand your uh, your craft, and yeah, yeah, and that's one of the. I reasons mean, wings why. wings in general, especially if they're single motor, uh, which most racing ones are going to be, they have a natural propensity to banking towards you know a certain side because that's the direction the motor is spinning. Whereas trying to force it the opposite way is always a little bit more of a challenge. But um, you know, even further, it's funny uh looking at the latency cycle like 220 milliseconds for the whole cycle and everybody's you know concerned about that extra one millisecond from their well, control link or video link that, right well that's uh that's a different part of the cycle so i think right. what that 220 seconds is is when you see the screen on the goggles to the input on the controller mm -hmm. and so that other that other latency that you get from the controller to the drone or to the quad racing quad, right? That will vary when you see your next FPV feed and what to expect on there. So, but the second part of that whole latency factor is your nerve latency, right? So mm -hmm. it's your 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 information processing, which is internal. So, what kind of exercises, mental exercises, could racers do to shorten that loop? Stay young. As opposed, yeah. You, yeah. well, you Stay see what young. I'm coming yeah. at, though, right? I mean, mm -hmm. even beyond just staying young, you know, there's reaction time, right? And and it all comes down to 
your reaction and your response. And the, the I mean, it feels like you'd have a bigger impact as a racer trying to shorten that mental latency as opposed to your control input latency. The way the study described it seemed like it was very constant between everyone that they were very similar to between everyone that they tested that at 220. It, they, it, they seemed to imply that it wasn't that much of a range. Interesting. That was one of the thoughts that I had is that the, to me, it, uh, any variation in latency is enormously frustrating. And you, know, you think about that response time if you're using Windows or using a Mac or, or something. And if it starts to vary on you, you get frustrated in a hurry. Mm-hmm. I, I know this from, from work um, where we, we strive to have uh, engineering workstations that had always sub-second response time when working in CAD tools. Otherwise, the engineers and designers go insane. And I would imagine that it's a similar situation, that if the, the, the response time varies, that's bad. However, the oh, 3 to 11 or 10 milliseconds turns out to be a smaller percentage of this total you know, feedback yeah. loop. So it's while it's not wonderful, you know, you're dealing with it because it's a small percentage of the total. Right. So I think that's kind of my thought is like, I mean, break it down to, you know, a, a different level. You know, you've got, uh, you know, heads up or Minchan. What's their latency process here versus somebody like Alex, who who's still up and coming, right? So, you know, it'd be interesting to or see. An, or an old guy. Right. Absolutely. Or one of us, you know, I mean, mine's. And then, you know, if you're well, tired, that, that latency is going to be longer. You know, if you're tired, you haven't slept, you know, that kind of thing, your latency is going to be longer than somebody who's well-rested. So yep. just some thought on personal mindset latency versus control and input. Cool article. Good find, Alex. There. That is cool. Yeah, that popped up on my LinkedIn feed this morning. And when I cool. saw it, I was like, oh, <laughs> last-minute article. Right? Absolutely. Timing, All right. timing, timing. Dave, real quick, uh, do we have any updates on anything from the FAA side of things? Uh, just a uh, verification, as we mentioned uh, last time we were together, June 23rd is the uh, the next stack. It's uh, noon to 2.30 Eastern. It will be virtual. You can, uh, if you're so inclined, you can uh, check it out on Facebook or YouTube uh two things to watch for they're they're not listed in the agenda is situational awareness at low altitude using rid info and we'll also be talking about gender uh, neutral language in aviation i participated in both of those and alex i know was uh, also involved in the situational awareness work and then we'll hear about what the next tasking is for the the next stack which i anticipate will be october all right. Uh, Dan, you got anything for us, sir? Uh, no updates this week. Nope. All right. Well, with that, guys, uh, if you have any questions, anybody have any questions, comments, thoughts? A little bit. Actually, right. uh, something slightly off topic. But Hey, what do you got? Well, so as a lot of you might know, right, we're undergoing a... Uh, semiconductor shortage with the chip shortage and everything. I'm kind of curious how that's going to start affecting the market for uh, RC flight control systems. Already is. Um, 
it's making things harder to get. I know that uh, just in the little bit that I've seen, I know that Preston from Flight One has been having issues getting his hands on stuff. I think he migrated to a different chip uh, for some of his uh, H7 flight controllers. Um, and I think you'll see a slowdown uh, uh, parts and components uh, that are, are needing uh, said chips now. And the, the the real shortages are in the application-specific integrated circuits. So if, uh, if it's a circuit that has to be designed and then I have to go to a fab and this is a custom, that's where the, the real nightmare yeah. is going to be. And the, the lead time to get those uh, ramped up into production are 18 months to two years. And uh, DJI... In addition, we have... Uh, DJI use that as an excuse to why they are no longer making their air units and have Cadex doing it, and Cadex has Vista shortages for sure. Because I'm wondering too if we're going to start seeing a resurgence, and you know I call it dumb flight, where we're removing flight controllers in some cases and going back to what it used to be, which is just an ESC hooked to, you know, a four or six channel receiver pushing everything else. I don't I think it's going to get that bad. What you, what you possibly could see is something along the lines of what uh, Skydio does. So they have a, a GPU driving their uh, flight controller work. And so that's a, you know, that's a serious computer and, and it's a, a parallel processor, uh, you know, far advanced, more advanced than what we use as flight controllers in our drones. And so that, that says they can just run everything in software because it you know, runs like a scalded dog. So they, you know, they're they not they're not forced to use uh, ASICs uh, as much, and so I I don't think we you know if we get to a design change, I would suggest that we'll see, um, you know, larger volume off the shelf uh, ASIC use uh, in place of our purpose design ASICs. Well, I will so... say if anyone has a use for uh, fifteen aught CC3D uh, flight controllers. I got you covered. If you want to dust off your old copy of Open Flight, I mean, here's the thing I would say is that if you like a particular flight controller, reach out to the manufacturer and see what's going on with them, so that you can understand what you need to do as a as a uh, personal pilot to stay in, you know, stay in the air. Don't crash. Um, but yeah, that I mean, that Don't might crash. be your best solution for a little while, but. At the same time, I don't think that there's going to be a, a massive shortage. I think you're going to see probably increased pricing uh, over the next couple of months and maybe year. Um, I know that, I mean, even in Skydio's case, they're using in, NVIDIA chipsets in their drones. And as we all know, if you're in drones, you're probably into gaming to a certain amount. Um, uh GPUs are hard to come by these days, not only because of the chip shortage, but because of mining, uh, cryptocurrency uh, mining, mining, Ethereum mining, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So, um, crypto, um, but, uh, and those prices have already skyrocketed and they've been up there for probably, I don't know. So does this mean we should be buying now? Skydio drones to be mining Ethereum? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it yeah, might be possible. So, um, so the the point I mentioned on the uh, uh, on things like Skydio is that uh, the manufacturer of the Nvidia chip is uh, uh, manufactured in the millions, and it's a high priority mm -hmm. processor yeah. uh, around the world. Uh, in addition to gaming, which is a, a 
are decent but not wonderful margin business uh, putting the GPU into uh, serious uh, scientific computers is a good business. And uh, so the yield off of uh, ASICs like that are in the millions uh, per year. So you know, fun, uh, you know, getting some of that supply is uh, a lot easier than some special purpose processors that uh, you know we desire or use. Well, and I do know, I mean, obviously I'm in Arizona. Arizona is a kind of a hub for some of these chip manufacturers now, not specifically, you know, flight controller, you know, chip manufacturers, but, you know, we've got a, a massive Intel plant. Um, we've got uh, TSMC is uh, moving in um, and setting up shop here. So uh, we'll have, and TSMC is like, I mean, they're, they're one of the biggest uh, chip manufacturers in the world. In the so, world. Yeah. yeah. TSMC and, in Taiwan is having real trouble because they're having um, challenges getting hold of vaccines for their employees, so they're they're at a very low uh, vaccinated rate. So they their engineers are you know not able to come back to work. So that's just slowing the whole process down. So yeah, we so. we could start seeing a, a a recession of more purpose built controllers and seeing more probably cookie cutter mm -hmm. type uh, just things. So instead of you know F four F seven processors, we might just be looking at all controllers coming out in the future is having yeah a, a gtx 3080 <laughs> that's well that's, i mean that's a possibility yes it is possible i think you'll you'll probably have i mean the the easy part here is that um these arm arm chips that are on a lot of these flight controllers they're they're prolific right now um but as that supply begins to get used up they're going to be harder and harder to come by because chip manufacturers are going to prioritize the the manufacture and fab of, of these things. And they're always going to default to what's going to make them the most money the quickest, which is going to be more, you know, smartphone, computer, laptop. Automotive. Yeah, all that stuff. And, and you know, I'm in the middle of buying a car right now, and I can't even get certain options on a vehicle from the factory because of chip shortage. Yeah, there's like, a dealership here that only got seven 2021 Ford F-150s in yeah. because that's all the factory could send them. Yeah, I'm getting a Toyota Tacoma, and I have to wait two months for it to get built and for them to have enough chips to actually build the damn thing. So I can't even buy a new mountain I mean, bike, and they don't even have chips in them. <laughs> <laughs> I just I so. noticed it because I was you know, I'm looking for uh, ESCs for a wing that I've built, and mm -hmm. it's like even the ESCs, uh, especially the ones with the uh, battery elimination circuits, are getting hard to find. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, like all the ESCs are running out, all the flight controllers. I've been to probably, I've been on GetFPV, RDQ, even even Banggood's running out. And that's what got me really going, oh my God, we have a problem. Yeah. If they admit to running so, out, that's you know, a problem. We... Well, no, everything on Banggood's website was like out of stock, out of stock, out of stock, out of stock. I was like, uh, yeah, no, we got a problem, boys. Yeah, I mean, you have a global supply chain issue and it's not just chips. It's a lot of different things. So... Um, case in point, I work uh, at a home improvement store and lumber is absurdly out of control. And it's not because lumber doesn't exist. It's because the need for it has risen. And the people who were home for a year uh, utilized a lot of supply. So that drove the demand up so they could raise the prices. It also comes from transportation issues because the price of gas is going up and there's a truck uh, a, a truck driver shortage to be able to transport these things. So 
all these seemingly little small things start to add up and increase the cost of lumber. Um, same thing with uh, like plywood or OSB. Um, glue shortages because the glue hasn't been manufactured or you know the the products to make the glue hasn't been mined um, leads to the uh, a cost of OSB going from eleven dollars a sheet to fifty three dollars a sheet. And so these kind of supply shortages are, are, are real. And it's not because, you know, the, the base material doesn't exist or hasn't been, you know, harvested. It's just because there's other small problems in between that increase those costs. Um, so, you know, I mean, around here in Arizona, people are moving here in, you know, the thousands upon thousands and people are trying to build homes as quickly as they can and people can't get the materials to build the homes to make the money so i mean and this this costs you know it's just this weird cycle that we're stuck in and the economy has yet to to recover and from this last year and it's going to take a minute in, in multiple sectors of the economy so yeah, and, i am and- i am curious to see how the uh this equipment shortage is going to affect stuff, especially for like the, the drone racing leagues, you know, that's, that's going to be interesting to see how they get by with it. Yeah. I know know a lot of the, like especially DRL stuff is very proprietary. Well, it is proprietary, but they also build their drones in the hundreds at a time. So, you know, they'll just have to be, you know, a little more cautious with their backup system. So they're a little more durable. Yeah. Tell the pilot to be a little less aggressive, or make the courses a little less aggressive, or you know something like that. Well, they're that. just doing sim stuff lately, right? So they need for real quads. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's going to have an impact, and there's probably going to be a significant shortage for a while. Um, so you know, it's it's going to be what it's going to be, and we'll just have to help each other get by. You know, if you've got a friend who's got a spare flight controller for you. You know, hit him up. Um, you know. All right. Any other questions? That was a good, great question, actually. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll let you all go for the rest of the evening. Uh, thank you, and uh, have a great night. And we'll see you again in another two weeks. Take it easy, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Have a good evening.